Welcome to Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel, with helpful travel tips, news and events, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from seasoned and experienced traveling anglers. This is your backstage pass to the world of fishing travel. Waypoints is fueled by adventure and brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, a hands-on specialty travel and booking company that delivers the industry's very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered. And now your host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. My guests today are Keith Clover and Rob Scott, the founders and principals of Tourette Fishing in Africa. I have known Keith and Rob for close to a dozen years, and to have the chance to get them out of the bush and onto the show to talk in detail about their world of adventure is awesome. These are two of the fishiest, most hardcore and exploratory guys I have ever met, and the operations that they've created in their part of the world are nothing short of amazing. Tourette Fishing was founded 15 years ago, the result of Rob and Keith's need for adventure and their love for the African wilderness, untouched places, and of course, fishing. There's a lot going on with these guys and their company these days, and I'm thrilled that they could carve out some time to sit down and talk tiger fishing with us. So, fellas, welcome to the show, and thanks for flying all the way over from South Africa just to do this podcast. <laughs> thanks, Jim. <laughs> Appreciate yeah, having you guys here. I was stoked to be here. How was the trip? Actually, pretty manageable. Eh? We uh, overnight flight from Johannesburg. so We, we managed to uh, pull the wool over a lot of the uh, flight attendants. <laughs> With our hut, we just uh, play the play the hot card and say, "Listen, we need some extra leg room." And we no- normally works. We normally uh, get put into some upgraded seats. So that worked. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes not. But well, there uh, you go. Worked this time. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. And Keith, let me start with with you. Tell me a little bit about Tourette fishing. Uh, exactly what you've put together over all these years with Tourette. So so what started uh, back in 2005, Rob and I out of university, was uh, an idea to get anglers who weren't familiar with what we had in Africa out fishing and for us to get out and guide. There was no, you couldn't get a job as a fly fishing guide in Africa or South Africa anyway. Um, So we started off uh, we've both got a background in, in, in the tourism industry as uh, photographic and, and wildlife guides. Um, this is, you know, after our university studies. And, uh, yeah, we, we we started putting our names out there and we would guide people wherever for whatever we could, could you know, could, could draw to, to get across to Africa. Literally, literally we would do, in those early days, anything. We would uh, build camps up the coast and we would take people on uh, cottage-to-cottage transcar hikes and literally anything anyone wanted to do with uh with water or fishing we would do it whatever it took to get outside yeah whatever yeah. whatever it took that's pretty awesome you guys met in university yeah correct yeah, yeah. okay yeah. well rob tell us a little bit about the original name why tourette fishing kind of an unusual name who came up with the idea and, and why oh uh, we used to when before we actually started the company before it was actually even an idea we used to joke that we had uh tourette syndrome for fishing um and uh Maybe not the most politically correct uh, name, but when you're at university and you're young and you don't give a shit, then you just you just go with it. And, and the um, name stuck. The name stuck, and it's it's actually 
uh, Tourette syndrome is a compulsion to the nth degree, so it's just something that you have to do. So we used to joke and say we had Tourette syndrome, we just had to go fishing. It was we couldn't control it; we just had to get out there. And um, yeah, looking back, it's a it's been a hell of a journey. And um, maybe it wasn't the, the the best name, but it's still very close to our hearts and something that we're extremely proud of, which we built over that time. Well, but now, and this is big industry news. You guys have just announced a merger with Keith Rosenis and Murray Collins from Blue Safaris and Alphonse Fishing Company. Tourette is now joining forces with what is arguably the best known operation in the world when it comes to fishing in the Seychelles and the Indian Ocean. And with this move, you guys have rebranded. You've rolled out an entirely new name and revamped the program. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you've got going on now. Right. So so the rebrand portion, I'll just quickly touch base on as following on from what uh, Rob spoke about a bit earlier with the, the name Tourette Fishing, for the last six or seven years, we've we've always toyed with the idea of a rebrand and we've had a couple of names on the back burner um, for the last couple of years. Um, and there just hasn't been the right time to, to roll it out. Um, so with uh, getting Keith and Murray on board, um, we decided that was the perfect time to, to kick the rebrand into yeah, the wheels into motion, and and it's still very new. It's a, a two weeks old. The the African Waters uh, brand, um, and yeah, I think it encompasses more on what we're trying to do in in terms of use our skill set and the product that that we offer to guests um, to protect the areas um, that 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 we work and operate in. Um, the merger with uh, Keith and Murray. Has also again been been discussed over beers for the last four or five years. Really, I've, I've heard about it in the works for a while. Uh, it, it's yeah. it's been it's been yeah it's been back and forth for, uh, and uh, you know on paper nothing much has happened until the last year. But uh, you know verbally and and over beers and discussions, it's been an ongoing talk on on how best to do it. And it just you know our philosophies on on what we want to do and how we want to use fly fishing, particularly to help. Uh, conservation communities in africa you know they're very much aligned so it was a it was a, it's a good fit and a good mix and yeah we, we're excited about the, it, the future it's like the perfect marriage i mean alphonse has built the best of brand in the saltwater world they're just killing it with everything Absolutely. they're doing and all their destinations you guys have had a parallel path in the freshwater world over yeah. there and so bringing these two forces together just makes all the sense. That's and exactly it. You guys are taking over the industry. It's well, crazy. It's, it's, uh, we got to yeah, watch out it's, over it's, here. It's, it's, South it's, Africans are going to be running the show yeah. for all of fly fishing in a matter of years. Well, we just need to get get the world to know about, about what's happening in Africa first. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. Now, going back a little bit, you guys talked about how you you uh, came together in university. Um, that's where you met. Was fishing kind of what brought you guys together? You both realized you were you know psycho fishermen and cut from the same cloth. You're like, yeah, I got to hang out with this guy. He, uh, I think, he I think it was actually you. ours. I had an incredibly good banter with the girls, and uh, Keith used to hang on the edges and pick up the scraps. <laughs> so, spoke like a true fishing guy. And then, like, exactly. uh, somewhere along the line, we figured out that we both liked fishing, yeah. and that was it. Eh? So, yeah, been friends for 20 odd years now, which yeah. is fantastic. Well, yeah. and, and not just friends, um, business partners now, and, and technically, you're now family as well. Yeah, right? br- brother in law. So, so uh, while I was picking up the scraps, I managed to to meet Rob's sister, <laughs> who wasn't taken. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so so I don't know, we've been married for eight years now. We've got a little daughter. Well, uh, that's yeah. that's awesome. So, Keith, let me ask you this first. So, how did you find your way 
to fly fishing as, as a, a young guy, as a kid? Um, who introduced you? How did you get started in the sport? I, I was fortunate. Um, our family had a, 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 I wouldn't say a farm, a wilderness area um, in a, a, a chain of mountains called the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa. They are a range of mountains running along the eastern side of uh, of South Africa, reaching heights of about or oh, in feet, just 11, 11 to 12,000 feet. They're the source of most of the rivers in South Africa. And uh, we had a family farm on in, in the foothills in the Drakensberg. Uh, and I grew up there. It, it, um, the British colonizers put uh, trout into those rivers in the 1890s. Um, so I grew up fishing with my father and my grandfather on, on the small streams in the Drakensberg fishing for for brown trout and rainbow trout uh, in in rivers like the Moy River and the Bushman's River, which are quite iconic trout rivers in a South African context, at least, um, you know, from the age of about five. Nice. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's how I got a good stuck way to in. get started, family. Yeah. And Rob, same question for you. How did you get started, and what led you to the sport, and then gradually into the business of fly fishing? Well, I actually didn't come from a fly fishing background. I came from I didn't really care. Just if it was fishing, I was there was uh whether it was rock and surf fishing in the in the salt fishing off a kayak out at sea fishing for bass fishing for anything any any river still water and the ocean which is as which is more close to my heart than uh than the freshwater side um and it was actually only through trade fishing that i started to fly fish properly i'd always fly fished a little bit but um yeah, the journey that we went through with uh, tread fishing and finding these new destinations and developing them is when I really started to fly fish a lot. And um, yeah, and the rest is history, I suppose. Well, you know, we were kidding about the number of South Africans that are involved in the fly fishing industry today, but it is a it is a wave. We're seeing it. And a lot of people in the States, uh, and I think in the industry in general, believe that the African continent is kind of the next frontier and maybe the last frontier when it comes to New opportunities and untapped angling adventure, for sure. You're seeing it everywhere in the magazines and the films. Lots of talk about it. You guys have literally been at the forefront of exploring and opening up some of these, I would say, kind of now known areas and sharing them with the world. And and you've given the sport of fly fishing and our industry a glimpse of what Africa really has to offer for fly anglers. So what compelled you guys to focus on the adventure angling option and you know, going out into the bush and and literally trying to discover new fisheries rather than something a little safer and, and more developed and known like maybe oh we're just going to stick to yellow fishing or even saltwater flats fishing i mean you guys went where no one had really gone before and thought we're, we're going to see what's out here I, th- I think that's a lot to do with our personalities and and looking to to keep motivation on a personal level up um the other major driving force is seeing how we can use fly fishing or, and tourism in general, but on the base of on the back of fly fishing to to help these areas and and, yeah. and protect areas. I mean, Africa to the outside world is is undeveloped and raw and just full of wilderness, but in reality, it is under huge pressure. I mean, the population is growing yeah. exponentially. Uh, resources are are you know dwindling, dwindling, and and are are, are let go to the highest bidder on on a you know a, a daily basis. So, you know when we can we can find these pockets of like pristine wilderness that are still intact or relatively intact in terms of a ecological point of view, um, and they offer fly fishing. It's a it's it's a perfect tool to conserve these areas. It's you're not going to get 
your average run-of-the-mill traveling tourist who wants to come and take photographs of elephants come into some of these areas. But, yeah. you know, if, if we can get, you know, 16 or 30 rods to some of these areas a year, we can make a significant difference. And, um, it, and, it's, and it's something that's uh, happened almost organically. Yeah, completely um, organically. We, um, we both come from a science background and, and I did honors in uh, economics. Um, and all these places basically come down to an economic model if they're not able to sustain themselves um, economically, then people will look for alternative uses for these places. And uh, developing places like uh, the Manyera and the Ruhuji in Tanzania, which is an incredible wilderness, um, you got to see first firsthand how the pressure was pushing up on the boundaries of these areas. And without fly fishing, it would have been... Uh, long gone like it, those wildernesses literally wouldn't be there anymore and um that has become a major driving force for for keith and i and one of the main reasons why murray collins and uh keith rose innes have joined up with us because you know they their outlook on these things is exactly the same as ours yeah same philosophies well you mentioned uh, tanzania and the flagship program for what was tourette what is now african waters has really kind of been your your tiger fishing operation in, in Tanzania. So this is an area and an operation that gets a lot of attention over here in the States. You know, big fish, really sexy looking, yeah. mean fish. Uh, I know that your company has different operations in other parts of Africa, and we'll, we'll ask about that in a little bit, but I definitely want to spend a few minutes talking specifically about your tiger fishing. So Rob, I'm going to ask you this. I mean, tiger fish, most people have, have probably seen photos of them. They are a badass-looking species, without without question. Uh, describe to those who have never fished tigers what it is that makes these fish special, Rob, and, and why they're so great on a fly. Uh, it's, I mean, they. it's an exceptional fish. That, I mean, the first thing is that, you know, a lot of uh, what's important for a lot of people is, is sight fishing, um, but that's not the case with how we fish for tigers. Um, it just comes down to brute strength, especially in the hit. It's a, it's a comment that you get over and over and over again when guys come to fish for them for the first time. That first decent-sized fish that, uh, that hits them, it really catches them by surprise. Um, you know, at the end of a, a week's fishing, I mean, your hands are literally torn to pieces. Um, <laughs> lots and lots of line burns. And... Uh, yeah, it's it's an exceptional it's an exceptional fish, very acrobat, uh, acrobatic, um, extremely strong, incredibly beautiful. That I mean, the, the teeth and 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 the colours on on the fish are are, are incredible. And it and it's and it's what's great about it is it's iconic of for Africa. You know, you, there's there's no there's no mistaking it for anything else. When you when you look at a tiger fish, it just screams africa to you and uh that that's that's uh, it's it's close to heart and and they just they hit hard i mean they're just yeah. ferocious. there's nothing gentle about these fish they're yeah. just nasty fish that are so much yeah, fun yeah. you're not uh, you're not guessing if you've had a bite or not eh? so <laughs> <laughs> you're lucky if the fish doesn't rip the rod out of your head yeah yeah and, yeah, and that's happened uh, yeah on numerous occasions <laughs> just to add on on that the other thing that 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 makes tiger fishing particularly in tanzania on the manier and ruhuji so special is the environment that you're in. Yeah. Um, you know, prime tiger fishing water goes with prime wilderness. You need a healthy ecosystem to support those rivers and the systems. And, uh, you know, where, where we're based in Tanzania, um, 
we we can see the results of of looking after those rivers and and the wildlife. I mean, we've seen lions on a weekly basis. You have herds of elephant, big massive herds of buffalo. It's a so you're fishing in in a incredible wilderness that without the fish would still be a beautiful place to be in. Um, well, and, and Keith, let me ask you about that because what makes your program unique is you'll go over there for a trip to go tiger fishing and you guys fish two different rivers, correct. the Rahuji and the Minera. And so midweek through you swap rivers and you're seeing kind of two different ecosystems within that same adventure. Yeah. And, and they're both productive, both very, different. Very productive and, and very, very different, um, which, which makes a, a, a really nice and unique trip. The Minera, we fish about 40 kilometers of the river. It comes we, from, from the forest above us in the catchment. Um, it's a shorter, deeper, faster water. Um, so different times of the season and depending on the rains, you're getting to fish quite different, uh, different waters. Uh, the Rahuji is a shallower, very windy, big sandbanks, uh, generally a little bit clearer water because it, it flows for longer from the catchment. Um, so yeah, you get, to, you get to experience two different waters, um, fishing predominantly the same style, um, although the Ruhuji you do focus a little bit more on, on surface stuff. Um, and the, the journeys between the two camps, uh, you get to look at uh, you know fantastic game along the way and, and experience. It's a huge area, 7,000 square kilometers um, of, that, of wilderness. And that's, that's one thing that's actually changed with our business over the last 15 years is initially we were very, very focused on you know, the, the fish and you're going to catch this or we have a chance at a, a 20 pound plus fish. And, and that was a big focus of our marketing and uh, trying to get people to come and experience these places. But as things have uh, evolved, the focus has been on, obviously fishing is a vital part and, and what gets people to come to these places. But the overall, overall experience, you know, everything from... Uh, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, the smells, the sights, uh, just the feeling of being on that river, and um, and that that's that's been a really great change that we've gone through, and it's been well received with uh, with the guests, because um, when they get there, they, you know, their minds open to the whole overall experience instead of just focused on that, you know, that one trophy fish, and you know, if they don't get that trophy fish, then the the weeks are bust. But um, and uh, yeah, I think it's 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 definitely the way that fly fishing travel is going. Is guys are looking for these real experiences, and you the know, complete some, package, the complete package, and something more than just fishing. And and for me personally, that's you know, my fly rods are literally an excuse to go to different places, that's and it's a good uh, way to look at it for yeah, sure. Yeah, I like that. So. You know, the Miniera and the Rahuji, you guys had spent a lot of time fishing in other places in Africa and catching tiger fish because they're found in quite a few places. But how did you guys discover this area and, and what was involved in that? I mean, the stories I've heard in the past about, you know, taking trains and going out into the bush and trying to figure out what exactly these rivers held. I mean, you guys had to do a lot of on the ground exploratory work and, you know, there weren't websites or guidebooks that, that told you what you were going to find. No, exactly. It's, uh, it, I mean, in retrospect, Tanzania was probably one of the easier yeah. fisheries um, that, to, we've, for, uh, that we've that we've put on the map in we've the gone last on we've gone years. on some ugly goose chases i can tell you that yeah. so, so <laughs> tanzania was actually a, a good friend of ours now who was a, a professional hunter in in tanzania had uh, spent some time on those rivers and 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 he let us know and said listen guys you need to come out here and have a look at at, at these rivers the fish that we're catching 
um, and, and what is available. And that's how the ball started rolling. In 2008, I think I went up for the first time. And, and yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a, a full-on adventure back in the day. Um, I, think, the, I think we spent all the money we had for Keith to go. Most likely. Yeah, for, for, three, for three days. And the first two days, there was no boat engine. Yeah, so, we, so we had spent, we had an engine. We didn't have a fuel tank. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we, we we spent all our money on three days to see if uh, this fishery would be viable or or oh. if if the rumors were true, and um, it came down to literally one day to see if for Keith to get, actually get on the water and uh, see if the rumors were true and yeah it was and true. they were they were true uh, it, it was tricky fishing that first trip i remember that first day we had, had rain it was early season we wouldn't fish there that time of year now um because we can be a bit more picky and choosy and we didn't get across to the ruhuji then either you're just on the minera we're just trip. on the minera correct um and yeah it, it grew from there and we've been you know the local concession owners in tanzania knes have been on the ground there since cheapest the last 20 years and we've been working with them on, on protecting the fishery and managing the fishery since then. So it's a it's a it's a yeah, it's a good relationship that that we keep growing. Well that's that's the obviously the partnerships are so important over there. Talk to us about making the trip into these camps. What's involved? If you're coming from the States, what does that kind of process and that journey look like? I'll, I'll leave this for Keith. Yeah, I'll start on, on the Tanzania front, it's uh it's actually quite easy. Um East Africa is a, a popular destination for you know accepting millions of tourists each year for, for on the wildlife side so to get into camp uh, on the Minera uh, main camp traveling from the u.s involves either a flight to europe um either a flight to europe a flight to dubai or potentially uh, a flight into south africa first um but but most guys coming through dubai or through holland and then you fly directly down into tanzania dar es salaam uh, most guests arrive on a Friday in Dar es Salaam. Um, you spend a night catching up on some sleep, uh, getting over the jet lag as best you can. And then Saturday morning, it's an hour 45 charter into camp. And uh, the charter is also spectacular because you fly over the Salu, which is one of the biggest naturally protected areas in the world, actually. Um, yeah, So it's an hour 45 in a Cessna caravan, landing on a dirt strip, um, which is about a 20-minute drive from camp. And then it's a... 20 minute drive in the back of the land cruiser into camp and you settle in and uh, you've arrived. And and you're out there. I mean, I, I remember the first trip we went in, we're coming in, flying in in the Cessna caravan and the pilot had to do a couple passes to kind of push the elephants off of the landing strip. Yeah, that's exactly. So standard procedure. <laughs> Either the pilot, I mean, in all bush trips in Africa, they do that, but uh, the guides will also now head out, um, you know, half an hour, an hour before the, the charter arrives and they'll do a couple of buzzes up and down with the vehicle and chase animals off the strip, particularly in Tanzania because the strip is right near a big pan called Ndolo Pan. So there's quite a lot of game moving through that area on a regular basis. Nice. Well, talk to me a little bit about, you know, it's a remote fishery. Um, you know, the fishing is, is demanding. Um, you know, these fish, as you said, are, are they're mean. They're, yeah. they're awesome. But it, it might not be a trip for everyone. So who, in your opinion, is best suited to go tiger fishing? Uh, in, in your operation, how would you describe the angling and the overall conditions? And what are some of the kind of essential skills or a particular mindset that's a good fit for this particular experience? I'll start. I think Rob add whatever I leave out. But Tanzania, I think the the first thing to understand is it's not a sight fishery. Um, so you're fishing either sink tip lines or or floating lines. Um, 
depending on the clarity of the water, quite often you'll see the fish chasing the fly and uh, obviously you'll see the surface eats. So if, if guys are after a, a sight fishing experience, then, then you know, tiger fishing is not um, really the, the, the option. Um, being able to make quick casts on the drift is, is crucial. So if, you know, if anglers can, can practice and make sure they can pick up a line and shoot out, you know, 30 foot, 30 to 40 foot casts fairly accurately on a consistent basis. Um, that that's important because you're fishing from the boat, fishing from the boat exclusively, except for one day, you you know, the, the, the trip is a seven night trip, six days of, of fishing. One day you spend walking in the top on the, on the Kasinga Rapids. The rest is all done off boat, either drifting or or anchored and and basically fishing to deep outside bends, swinging flies um, and retrieving. So being able to cast a nine weight um, for a day is important. The other important thing is being able to pace yourselves. So so I mean we all, all say it, and the guides make a huge effort in, in in the briefings to say, guys, you're here for six days. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Don't come out the blocks firing, trying to hit every single spot we call out on the drift. You know, keep keep casting and and within your physical limitations, so you don't literally blow out an elbow or a or a, or a shoulder. Because we see it. We, I mean, I'm I'm sure you see it also with lots of your guests. But you know, guys have been sitting in in the office for eleven months of the year, and they do their trip and they get terrible tennis elbow the first the first week of the trip. That's uh, that that's uh, that's a bit of a problem. So and yeah, I think lastly mentally. The guys who consistently do well are guys who can keep their head in the game, because tiger fishing is is like a lot of fishing. It's feast or famine. You'll go through patches of two or three hours where it's very quiet, um, and, and then and they're hard to stick. Yeah, like yeah. They, you know, it's not a fish that comes to the boat easy. Yeah. So that monkey can get on your back, and you lose your mojo, and yeah. that can be it for a few days. Yeah, if you if you don't get your headspace right, you're gonna battle. So you've got to stay in the game and, and make it count when the bite happens. And it's actually, it's, uh, it's, it's true for all fisheries, really. And, and we see it a lot where the guys push themselves too hard in the first couple of days. And, you know, it gets to the fourth or fifth day where there's these sessions that are really firing and the guys just don't have the energy. So they're broken. Yeah, they're, they're broken. Literally, <laughs> literally broken. And um, it's a big part of what the guys do is try and to, to manage that energy level right through the whole week. And um, especially in some of the salt, um, when it comes to tides and stuff like that, the guides will say, you know, you have to, you have to be ready for these these few days. This is what we're expecting is going to happen. You know, if you're totally blown by the time that time gets there, you know, it's you, you you're going to miss out on some special stuff. So, yeah, and on the tiger fishing side as well, it's a, it's an important part of it. Maybe. Fish smarter, not harder. Yeah, pretty smarter, much. not harder. I like that. Well, yeah. I I have to say that after my my first trip over there, it was seven or eight years ago it kind of redefined my perspective of, of guide hardships and challenges. Cause you know, I live in Montana. It's the fly fishing capital of, you know, of, of the States uh, and a challenging or hard day guiding involves maybe a delay at the boat ramp when you're trying to splash your boat or, you know, there's an upriver wind, maybe there's some lightning or, you know, the occasional bee sting, right. You know, those all <laughs> encompass a hard day of guiding on the water, but you know, where you guys are out there in the bush, I mean, you're dealing with an insane number of challenges and crazy factors on pretty much a daily basis. I mean, you know, you got snakes and army ants and lions and elephants, but my favorite moment over there, baboon spiders, you know, that was great with Rob, uh, you know, Cape Buffalo, you got TC flies, 
of course, you got the Crocs and the Hippos on the river, but this is like not your average day on the Madison River in Montana. No, I no, mean, not at all. You not guys all. have a lot going on I in mean, these fisheries. When we when we started uh, gardening, because it was something that we had, um, it's not something that anyone introduced us to. It was, you know, we just, we were going to grow this business and we were going to take guys fishing. And um, maybe we came out the blocks a bit too fast, but we literally would guard as hard as we physically could for as many hours as we could and and that meant with some guys we would literally guard and pull that boat for 14 15 hours a day and yeah. come rain come shine come, come malaria whatever, not whatever anything the and uh, the guys would be and maybe the guests took a bit of advantage of us but they we wouldn't even stop for lunch we would literally be pulling the boat and like trying to get a bite of a sandwich in between unhooking fish and so um yeah, there, there wasn't there wasn't really uh, any benchmark for us no to manual. measure. Yeah, there was no no manual for us to check up on on what we should try and uh, try and do. And that's and it's been a big part of our business from the start up until now. And, and we something we really pride ourselves on is how hard the guards work for us. And um, got a great great team uh, spirit and a, a great team of guys. And those guys really put their bodies on the line yeah. to make sure the guys. Um, get the most out of their time on the water, which is important. But, yeah, the, um, the other thing is a skill set. It's a, the skill set that that we look for in 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 our guides teams. You know, following on from what when Rob and I started, is the guys really have to have a very unique and broad set of skills. Being able to obviously they need to be fishy people to start with, uh, like all guides, and and good good with guests. But but they need to have a a proper understanding of of the safety implications of, of where they're operating and, and what's safe and what's not safe and where to push and where the boundary is between, you know, safety and, and going that, you know, a little bit too far potentially to get the fish, which is obviously not, not on the cards at all. Uh, and then being able to deal with third world problems we experience on a daily basis in, in remote locations. I mean, this happens, you know, guiding anywhere. I, I suppose it's the same in Alaska and Russia, um, out at Tulsa Seychelles, but dealing with, with mechanicals and, um, you know, physical or, or sickness issues with with guests on camp. So, so they need to have a, a, a quite a unique and and broad broad skill set. Skill set yeah. Um, where where the fly fishing guiding is is potentially only you know fifteen percent of it. You know, it's fifteen percent that they have to do hundred percent well. But it's uh, the, the, one of the first years we were up there. I slept on the slept on the ground, and I'm talking about sleeping on the ground, no mattress, no pillow, no blanket for six weeks. <laughs> and that was that was like the introduction when i came back from one of those seasons i don't know if i can uh put in uh, pounds but in kilos i went up there i was 100 kilos i came back i was 80 kilos so i lost 20 percent of my body weight in three months so so guiding over there is not for the faint of heart you gotta you gotta wear it's, your big boy pants it's a lot better now it's a lot yeah. better now yeah yeah like, the, uh, the systems are in place there i hope you at least bought rob a ground pad yeah we, <laughs> we've got now the guys have all got got good beds they get lots of extra supplements and and and, and food sent up yeah listen it's it's from those early days a lot has changed well that, yeah. it's those early days that, that you remember because exactly what, what built it up but let's talk a little bit about specifically to your tiger operations there's a a, a window of opportunity where you guys or over there fishing. It's a pretty short season. Um, what is the best time of the year to be there? And when do you guys operate for tiger fish? So the prime time in Tanzania on the Maniera and the Ruhujis is from mid-August through till mid-November. Um, all things being equal. Uh, I'm sure I'll be echoing what uh, every other guide in the world is saying at the moment. Uh, you know, climate change 
we're seeing it um where we had very defined wet and dry seasons i mean you could you could bet your you life on, bank on it um those are changing now so but but all things being equal yeah we we wait for the the end of the the dry season when the water is at, at its lowest and at its clearest um the rain stop in tanzania generally in june july and then the waters start to drop fast and clear quickly um and the rains will the big rains will normally start in december so you need that that short window of uh yeah basically august to mid november and then we cherry pick again um the the best weeks which generally start late august and go through till mid november that's gotcha well so that's the time frame it's a specific window let me ask you for one minute about equipment and you were talking a moment ago you mentioned a nine weight what's the preferred go-to tiger fishing setup for your areas um if i'm heading over what am i bringing as far as a rod and reel setup what do i need so on the tiger fishing front it's it's uh very straightforward and uh, the standard is a is a nine weight nine foot um you know medium to fast action rod um Fly lines, uh, ideally you have two rods set up, um, one with a sink tip, a 300 grain or 350 grain weighted sink tip, uh, and then... Warm water line. Yeah, warm water, tropical line, obviously, and then a floating line. Um, all standard weight forward, uh, nine weight lines. The leader setup then is, again, fairly basic. It's a 40 pound uh, mono maxima we like. It's just a good knot strength and quite good with abrasion and then knotable tiger wire so it's uh yeah, the wire is key i mean knotable tiger wires have some proper teeth proper proper teeth and in the early days we were still using piano wire um which was uh, i mean we used that for the first probably three or four years up there until we could find a suitable knotable wire um yeah. which now makes it makes the world a difference not only in terms of you know making sure you you're not so string you land in more big fish but also it's a lot less hard on on, on the fish's mouths um, and it's nice to have multiple rod and reel setups like you're saying because you're in the boat you can have one set up with your floating line you've got another with a 300 or 350 correct. but then you can swap back and forth absolutely and as you're drifting along and water depths are changing you're staying in the game yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. so so that, that's ideal um, and the guys will 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 call it you know that they, they know the river like the back of their hand so so they'll say okay we're going to be fishing another 100 meters you know swinging into these deep outside banks but be ready i'm going to pass you your 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 floater because we've got a 50 meter section of some shallow clay bombies and there's some fish that will come up to a surface fly over these areas so so they, they they've got it dialed in now uh, compared to when when you and i fished um and, and rob back in 2008 or 9 it was where we were almost exclusively fishing sink tip lines that's right it's, yeah. it's probably 50 percent floating and 50 percent sink tip now we actually we um, actually tried to we tried to figure them out on on floating lines and and flies but we actually we got it completely wrong we thought that uh fishing with something that made a lot of noise would get them to come up and we kept on throwing things that were louder and louder at the fish and they didn't like it at all no. and it was actually the younger guards teams that came through and figured it out that they wanted something that was very quiet on the surface and um, they've developed a few flies that work incredibly well and it's been a game changer oh, big time. For, for targeting these fish on surface flies, which is obviously very exciting. The best way to do it. Real-wise, it, you know, tiger fish, particularly on the drift, um, it's not too crucial. Uh, you know, a big fish on anchor will take you into your backing, but if you're drifting, generally you can keep up with the fish, so... So a standard you know, saltwater reel with 100, 150 yards of 30-pound backing is all that's, that's required. Perfect. Well, Rob, let me ask you, we talked rod, reel, fly lines, obviously important. Yeah. What are some other key pieces of equipment for that fishery over there? Sun cream. 
<laughs> it gets um, Africa hot for yeah, sure. It yeah, is, it is sunny and hot. There's, uh, there's not there's not a huge amount of um, that that the guys need. Um, definitely, uh, you know, great uh, any you know almost like flats gear, um, uh, long sleeve hoodies to protect themselves from the sun. Um, the other the other stuff that we should have touched on was probably the the four and five weight uh, setups um, where the guys target uh, yellowfish on the sandbanks, which is yeah, exceptional. It's all sight fishing and 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 a really nice change from from the tiger fishing. Um, yeah, and I'm trying to trying listen. To th- I, I mean, finger gloves for for yeah. line burns. Um, they do get a bit manky after a while. So a lot of the times, guests will just prefer to to tape up their fingers. Yeah, bring but athletic tape. Exactly, because it does slice your hands up. Absolutely, Those and that heat, particularly if, rugged, particularly if if that line has a bit of chance to dry before you start stripping. You're yeah. fishing those outside mends and and you, you've mended a couple of times you let it sink down that and you get a hit on the first two or three strips over that dry line it, uh, it, it's gonna it, cuts, up. it cuts through most things but yeah. we actually it's a a constant battle is trying to keep the guys to limit the amount of gear that they bring um because you know you're fishing on a boat all day and you're trying to keep it neat and you know the guards trying to make sure that the decks are clear and um yeah if there's if there's a shitload of gear on the boat it's uh yeah it gets a little tight yeah it yeah. gets a little tight and and other than the upper water where you do for a day up by the falls where you are kind of hiking around and scrambling over the rocks uh you really don't need wading boots because you're not getting out of the boat no and, definitely not and and even more so now i mean the the, the hippo and crocodile populations on the manier and ruhuji have gone up uh, you know exceptionally over the last 10 years because of the increased pressure uh, uh presence on on the water from from the guides team so you know the, the rivers in a lot of remote areas of Africa are, are the transport routes and the ways to move between areas um, safely. You know that guys don't have to walk through big game country. Um, and obviously, when when you've got people moving through areas, they are fishing and putting snares down and and trap sticks, etc. So we don't see any of you know. There's no people moving through the through the fishery anymore, and it's given the the hippos and crocodiles a real chance to to bounce back and. And yeah, they, it's a, it's, it is a it is a real that's a know, safety concern. Of, yeah, of saying yeah. you got to stay on your toes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not a place you want to go swimming. That's for sure. But um, well, you can actually. So some the guys, places. some places where the guys have lunch on the side of the river and there's a shallow sandbank. The guys will, I mean, the guys really know what they're doing. Eh? They they make sure that the guests are safe at all times, and um, yeah, they 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 know what they're doing. Eh? That's it's exactly what you want when you go to somewhere new. Um, you want the person that's looking after you to uh, to know what the deal is, eh? Yeah, you're so. not. This is not a good do-it-yourself fishery. <laughs> no, <laughs> not no. at all. So uh, one of the other things too is is flies, and we get a lot of questions about that. Um, what to tie? What to buy? How to ensure that you're showing up with the flies, and and more importantly, the hooks yeah. that act that that work. What can you tell us about the most effective fly designs for tiger fish, and what are they eating, and what are you trying to imitate with the flies you're throwing at them? So there's been quite an evolution of flies from the early days. Um, I'll start with hooks. So, so what we found, I mean, that's been probably the the biggest one of the biggest game changers in in tiger fishing, particularly on the manure where we fish into those really big fish and the manure in Rahuji, is is hook style, and uh, you need to go with a quality hook. And, and that TMCO 600 SP is. Yeah, that's the hook. It's, a, it's bulletproof. That yeah. that is it's it's made for that fishery. So so don't even pitch up if you're not 
using that hook because if, if the guys open your box and you've tied on on any other hook, even you know, not, not saying other hooks are bad hooks, they just don't work for that fishery. Yeah. So so that's a key. The TMCO six hundred SP, um, and then the fly patterns. I mean, it, you you could go with a handful of Andino deceiver type flies, um, some SF baitfish imitations, and some surface flies. The Holly Shake Stu Holly, our head guard in Tanzania for the last four years, developed that surface fly. Um, but basically, we imitate in the local Alistis baitfish species, um, and they are, and and a couple of the minnows, um, and natural colours uh, with tying with a lot of natural fibres. Actually, uh, where you know. Ten years ago, we tied with quite a lot of synthetics because they they were more robust and, and didn't get torn up so much. But uh, we've we've made a significant push back to tying with lots of naturals. So a lot of spun deer heads, big marabou collars, uh, long saddle hackle, and and uh, schlappen hackle tail. So anything that that that's got a lot of natural movement and um, and pushes and pushes water push as water, well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a uh, especially those deer hair baitfish patterns, and and uh, for a lot of guys that have fished um, peacock bass. And, uh, and Dorado, and Dorado um, their fly boxes can transfer quite nicely from those fisheries to tiger fish. And it's, and it's often, we've actually found some really nice uh, patterns where guys have come across from, uh, from fishing for Dorado and said, oh, you know, do you think this pattern's going to work? And we try it and it flipping blows the lights out. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, we always try new things and, and the, the patterns that we're using are always evolving. And it's something quite nice, relatively new fishery where you things are changing on an ongoing basis. So always evolving. Yeah, Completely. always evolving. Yeah. Even always searching for season. the next magic bullet. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Well, I mean, one key piece of advice to um, go tiger fishing in Tanzania is, is uh, book early because, again, it's a short window. It books up sometimes a year or two in advance. And if you want to get over there, there's a limited number of rods. Um, book out as far as you possibly can. Absolutely. The the added to that is the I mean it's only eight rods a week, four on each river. So um, a lot of guys will be like, oh, we we would like to come across, and we've got a full group of you know six or eight guests, and uh, we either we find we get bookings in groups of four or groups of eight. Right. Um, so it again, to, there might be a rod available here and a rod available there, but uh, if if you want to come across with a bunch of angling buddies. Obviously, yeah. As early as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we fully, we, I'm not full up, but we, we're filling up 21 now, 2021 yeah. now. Yeah, so. Well, and and we've been talking a lot about the tiger fishing operations in the Minyera and the Rahuji, but with African Waters, you guys have other operations and other offerings throughout Africa. And I know that we could literally spend hours more talking about each one, but give us a quick rundown of your other operations. Where else African Waters is operating, and, and what else you have in the collection? Well, do you want to do you want to just run through the freshwater stuff? Keith? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. So yeah. I'll, I'll start with the freshwater. That's sort of Rob and I split our tasks: freshwater and saltwater. So on the freshwater side, obviously there's Tanzania, as we've discussed. Um, we've got a wonderful operation in Lesotho called the Mukangwa Community Camp, which is a fly fishing and uh, community tourism initiative. That's site fishing exclusively to Yellowfish and trout, uh, spectacular up in the Lesotho mountains. We, um, yeah, it's I could go on for hours because I'm really passionate about that area. So it's also one of our busiest camps. Um, we've got um, the a Kalahari drift experience. So Orange River is a river that flows off um, from South Africa interior out the west coast. It exits in the border between South Africa and Namibia, um, and the Orange River 
again, fishing for yellowfish and what's become really sort of popular the last five years is largemouth yellowfish, which is the Southern African equivalent of a mossier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a predatory yellowfish. The South African record is, is you know, over 40 pounds, but, you know, a big fish is, you know, trophy fish we consider anything from 10 and, and we get in on up to, you know, 20, 25 on fly on a regular basis. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful fishery and it's all done on multi-night drift trips through the Kalahari Desert, which is spectacular. But this ribbon, ribbon of, of greenery through uh, just stark, stark desert. Um, and then our latest project is in Cameroon, fishing for really, really big Nile perch. Um, we've got three species of tigers on the Faro River there as well. So there's uh, Bitatus, Brevis, and Foscali. But the, the main target species is Nile perch. And for us, that's our, our next step of, of major development is, is getting this fishery to a point where anglers are confident enough to travel out to it on a regular basis uh, because it is Cameroon and it's a, it's a, it's a tough one to, to start with, but it's incredible in terms of a wilderness experience and a fly fishing experience. It's, it's right up there. I don't think I've left any out on the freshwater side. No, no. Then uh, on, the, on the salt side, um, we um, developed a flats fishery in the Red Sea um, off the coast of Sudan that we named the Nubian Flats, which has been going now for... Plus on eight years. Uh, 2013 we started. Yeah, so yeah, seven years. And um, yeah, it's an exceptional fishery um, on the flats, largely around the, um, the trigger fishing, which is, I can't imagine there's another place in the world that has trigger fishing like we do in Sudan. Um, but then all the iconic uh, flat species, um, GTs, uh, fantastic bluefin, uh, Trevelli, um, we get uh, our number of shots at permit and oversized bonefish. Um, yeah, and some very interesting stuff. We've caught uh, dog tooth tuna off the edges of the flats. Um, cast a sailfish on the flats? Yeah, cast a sailfish on the flats. Only once. And um, <laughs> yeah, exceptional numbers of boho snapper. And again, the, the whole experience, um, you know, being in the Nubian desert with the Nubian mountains, and it's like being on the moon. But then in contrast to the extreme amount of uh, life in the Red Sea, it's, it's, yeah, it's quite something. And it's a completely foreign landscape, foreign uh, um, culture, but yeah, a, an amazing experience. And it's something, you know, when you mention the word Sudan, it's probably not up there on many people's uh, travel lists. but it's an exceptionally safe place, very, very welcoming. And we're quite proud of how we've been part of changing people's perception about that part of the world, which has been fantastic. To, and, to and mention it's a, it's a liveaboard operation. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we've actually, this next season, we, um, we're splitting it and we're running two different operations there, two different boats on a new area in the south and um, the historical area that we fished in the north, which is really exciting. Um, and then other parts of the saltwater is um, Gabon, which has been a major part of what we've been doing. We've been very, very involved in Gabon for a long time, um, very involved with uh, on a government level, um, developing policies to look after the amazing resource that they have in the marine ecosystem. Um, and uh, there we operate in the south um, out of our camp at Setakama, Um and although largely based around spin fishing initially, we've been developing uh, the fly fishing 
um, up there for some time and it's um, yeah, produced some amazing results. And for me personally, when if, if I think of somewhere where I want to go fly fish, I want to be on a beach in Gabon. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. You know, elephants on the beach, buffalo on the beach, around you while you're fishing and you're fishing for 200 pound plus top and with a fly rod off the beach. And um, yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in Gabon. There's uh, there's a lot more projects on the cards, uh, other areas that um, that are open to us to develop. And uh, yeah, uh, I think in in three or four or five years' time, it's, Gabon's going to be a, a, a serious destination for fly fishermen. And um, other places that we fish. Costa Rica, well, but it's Costa Rica. I was going to say with the African, African waters, portfolio, yeah, yeah. you're going to have, a, have to have an asterisk next yeah, to it. Yeah, exactly. And also Costa Rica tarpon. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's, um, you know, we, I went and visited Costa Rica oh, also about 10 years ago. Yeah. And uh, met this local family on uh, the Rio Colorado, which is not a new fishery at all. Um, and really fell in love with, uh, fell in love with the place and uh, made a real connection with this uh, Costa Rican family. And over the last 10 years have, have been a real part of mentoring them and developing their guest house that they run for fly fishing for these tarpon. And it's, a, I, you know, guys have been fishing that fishery for 40 or 50 years, but it's still an exceptional place. I mean, there's a, it's a crazy number of tarpon there and a great authentic experience. And uh, I mean, for me personally, it's been amazing to see how our input and fly fishing in particular has literally changed that family's lives. Um, Brian, the son, is just about to finish varsity, and you know, that's a direct result of, uh, of fly fishing. So it's more, it's not, I wouldn't call it a, a big part of our portfolio, but it's definitely. But it's a project for it. It's, it's yeah, definitely yeah. very, very close to, to my heart in particular, and um, something that I look forward to every year is, is, is going to Costa Rica, yeah. And, and I mean, this is an amazing collection of destinations that you guys have put together, obviously largely, you know, based in Africa, the, the one project in Costa Rica, but boy, such diversity and, and, and so this, many cool and things. Uh, we, we constantly got a few new ones on the back burner. So Always looking for the next great place. Yeah, we've actually, a colleague of ours, Ed Truta, who works with us, he literally, that's all he does is work on the conservation stuff and is always looking at these new new areas. And there's, yeah, there's a handful of possibly very special places and um yeah hopefully we'll be able to share them with the fly fishing world in the near future well you guys have done some incredible things and you know the the term pioneer gets you know overused these days when it comes to angling but you guys have definitely done it and, and in a place where you know it's uh there's so many great stories to come in the future uh I, we're going to close things out on the show here but i've got to ask you guys one more question and and i'll preface it with this um, the first time I fished with you guys, it was probably the second day of the trip and we're drifting down and I think we're on the Minera and um, we, you cut the, the motor and we kind of drift up to the sandbank and, and you guys say, okay, come with me, be really quiet. Let's sneak out here and we get up on the sandbank and we kind of climb up and I, you peek over and there's about eight big crocs that are sunning themselves yeah. and they're asleep and they're all happy, but they're huge. And you guys are like, oh, this is fun. We love doing this. So I'm thinking, what are these guys doing? This is insane. And you're like, okay, on three. And on three, you guys go running and screaming over the sandbank. The crocs wake up. They're launching themselves off the bank into the river, trying to get away. And meanwhile, there's like six more crocs that were asleep in the bush behind you. So these crocs are shooting past. Absolute chaos. Nile crocodiles everywhere. And, and they're, they're all bigger than we are. And I'm thinking, 
So this is what these guys do for fun. This is this is yeah, when you when you're in the bush for uh, four months at a time with uh, not a girl in sight, you you come up with a vent of uh, <laughs> creative a vent of waves to. Uh, to, to entertain, yourself. entertain ourselves. Yeah. No, listen, there's no more of that going on. It's a, it's a, it's a, not, not because of the safety issues, because I mean, that, there's no, there's no issues with safety with the crocs on the land there, but just because of the sort of ethical, right, ethical. right. Yeah, we were a bit early days, a bit young and bullish. It was uh, pretty but, fun. But, but, I think uh, when 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 Jim arrived with the camera, we were like, "Geez, we better try and press this guy. <laughs> better start chasing some crocodiles." Well, that did. That moment <laughs> impressed me greatly. But uh, all right, I got from each of you. I got to have here one kind of crazy story in, in your search for new rivers, setting up these camps, dealing with the logistics, the flights, the train rides, all of these years of pulling it together. I want to pit each you on the spot for your, your craziest story from your years of jungle fishing and exploring. Let, let's hear one from each of you. Chief, let's go with you first. I mean, I think there's a whole lot. I, I mean, not talking about, you know, seeing exceptional fish come out of places. Uh, I think one of the, the toughest experiences of my life uh, on terms of exploring fisheries is probably that Congo trip we did in 2008 or 9 yeah, where shit, that wasn't pleasant. Rob and myself and Ed Truter went to go look for Goliath tiger fishery up in uh, in Congo Brazzaville. Uh, we went into a remote national park which is actually now open to the public called uh, Odzala National Park and we spent 10 days 12 days on a dugout canoe literally on a dugout canoe which was about Oh, 12 meters in length, um, just getting eaten alive by all the insects you can imagine. Um, the village we started in had, this is not good for marketing Africa. <laughs> Listen, we don't go there anymore. But the, the, oh, the, the, village, the village we started in, you know, in, in early 2000, actually been pretty much wiped out from an Ebola outbreak. And you say Ebola, everyone thinks it happens all over Africa. This is a, a small village in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, so for me, that was one of the most, the, the wildest, experiences yeah. um also getting in there was just just wild we used to pretty sketchy logistics and 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 traveling you know third world country african airlines things all work everything's safe but time is 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 very but those uh, i mean we've been on a lot of, on a lot of exploratory trips and they uh they harden the body yeah. so that that was particularly hard i was when when we got on that plane to get back to south africa i was happy well, we really actually happy. we actually we, we um funny part of that trip we were coming back from Congo Brazzaville back into the DRC the Democratic Republic of Congo Kinshasa Kinshasa and um, we looked on our passports and they'd made a mistake on our visa and put down the wrong date so before we crossed the border we sat down and doctored the visa ourselves <laughs> like changed the date on the visa you're like and, I'm getting out of here no matter what <laughs> and uh, and we got we got to the border post and um this big Congolese dude looks at our passports and like literally straight he away stopped. wasn't buying it. Yeah, he was like, you guys have doctored these things. So, And Ed's chatting away in French to him and he's like, no, 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 you guys are in big trouble, you're in big trouble. And suddenly there was this like outbreak of like shouting out in the street and he like ran out to, to uh, sort out whatever dispute was going on and we literally just grabbed our passports and ran through the... Ran, ran through to the taxi on the other side. Another two things that stood out on that trip is uh, Rob got his balls fondled <laughs> by, by, by a customs official in Kinshasa, full on, full on, probably five second groping. No, no, but um, I'll, I'll tell a story about yeah. that. I don't know, I want like any weird rumors going around the fly fishing world. It wasn't a left, uh, is what you're saying. You, okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't solicit the ball feeling. Um, I was coming through 
through uh, customs and I go through this queue where, where you know, bags are getting searched and I look through on the other side and there, there's Ed and Keith both standing, staring at me, but like, with like this funny like smirk on their face. And I was like, what's, what's wrong with those guys? Like, you know, something's definitely up. And I got to the guy who was going to search me and he patted me down searching for whatever contraband I had on me. And he literally looked at me in my eyes and just grabbed my balls. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a, it's been a longstanding joke. So your buddy set you up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, listen, we had gone through first. We had, we had the fluffers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. And, and so many great stories. Uh, great operation. Congratulations, you guys, for what you've set up. Thanks, guys. Uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for, for sitting with me today and for making the effort to be here. I really appreciate uh, it. Thanks, I know. thanks for having us. Well, everybody listening loves, loves the stories, too. That's so great stuff, Jim. That's Yo, great. Great and, to be here. Well, good. And, and you know, that's it for this episode of Waypoints. We're going to wrap things up. Waypoints is the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, adventure, and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research your next trip, sign up for new podcast notifications, and of course, the latest travel news and developments. Join us for our next episode of Waypoints, and remember, no matter where you are or how you get there, no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Thank you for joining us and be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more trip updates, travel news, expert advice, and adventure profiles. Mm-hmm.